and I'm Kat, and welcome to the Crime Chat. I am your forensic femme fatale, Natalie, your true chromatic connoisseur. We're just two normal girls who obsess about dark crimes, evil minds, and occasionally the unknown. And here's your disclaimer chatters. Today's Crime Chat does contain adult content, and it will contain very violent scenarios, so your listener discretion is advised. You have been warned, and before we get into today's Crime Chat... Cat, where the hell are you? You're hovering, I see. Whoa, I'm in a spooky forest. <laughs> it looks spooky. It's giving me vibes, girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the story today kind of takes place um, kind of out in the woods a little bit, so I opted for a little bit of aesthetic mm-hmm. to kind of put us there. Yeah, give us I'm, some give, give us some spooky forest vibes. I'm there. I, I would never uh, live there, but mm-hmm. I would definitely very embody there if I had to. Well, the body was found there, so you're kind of on the right track. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know. <laughs> but so this last week or so, I am, Chris and I watched The Night Agent, the series on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty good. It Just based on some of my like experiences for being an investigator. And then I had some also involvement with like the presidential pilot's office and the presidential services that's at Andrews. It was one of my first duty assignments out there. Mm-hmm. It seems some of it seems a little far fetched, but it's entertainment. You know, it's it, it was it was pretty good for what it was. So is it like a, a is it like a mockumentary or is it a documentary? Is it a series? Oh, no. It's a series. It's, it's drama. Okay. It's total fictional drama. Uh, so basically, this FBI agent is considered the night agent. Mm. He's, on, he's basically assigned to a desk at the White House mm. in the overnight hours. So from like 8 o'clock at night till about 4 o'clock in the morning. Okay. And his one and only job is to answer this very specific phone if it should ever ring. Oh. So it's very heavy on like counterintelligence and spies and there's a leak in the white house Uh and somebody's trying to kill some of the upper people and make it look like it was um an accident or a terrorist attack Mm. but it was really kind of an inside job it was it was was pretty good Uh, yeah well that's really happened so yeah it's not like it's it's totally false well yeah it's definitely based on some reality But the ties into, like, the one character and how this one person who's trying to keep this other person safe who's a witness, like, it's just, like, all of these things only happen to that one person. Eh, eh, I don't know. Well, how many people do you think thought that Mindhunter was fake? A lot of people did not realize how that is a dramatization of the reality. But, yeah, that shit really fucking happened. Like, that was real. But it was yeah. so far-fetched. When you, if you watched it and you really didn't know who John Douglas was and you didn't know, mm-hmm. you might have thought, like, wow, they really spun this good story around these actual serial killers. But no. No. Well, and that's what makes for some of the best entertainment and movies mm-hmm. and television is, you know, based on somebody's... Yeah. So something somebody else has already done. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. But with a twist, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I did a ton of research on the story that we're going to go over today. And we'll kind of get into that here in, in a bit. But one, I I don't know. I woke up one morning and I was like, I really want to watch Jaws. Jaws is probably my favorite movie of all time. It's a great fucking movie. Serial killers don't have to always be human. No. <laughs> no. This rogue, curious uh-huh. Oh, shoot. Uh, Carious Concarious, I think is what it is. A great white shark. Carious Concarious. A great white shark. (laughs) So I could almost recite that entire movie. So I probably, 
watched it about five times in a matter of two days just because like I was just feeling it I've read the book several times some of the the sequels and stuff to it some are better than the other so I think the the original is my favorite. The fourth one, Jaws the Revenge, is probably my second favorite. Yeah, I have so. I have a friend who collects uh, Hollywood just memorabilia, and mm-hmm. he went to the beach by Cape Cod where they actually left Films. all of it there. Like, they left mm-hmm. the actual well, parts of the shark there mm-hmm. and just left it on the beach. And you can go mm-hmm. and you can kind of tour the beach and see yep. where they are. It's pretty cool. What was the name of the shark that they named, the mechanical shark they used to film it? They had a name for it? Yep. Dougie. (laughs) Bruce. Bruce. (laughs) That's not too far off. (laughs) Oh my god, is that why why Nemo, Finding Nemo, named the shark Bruce? Is it? Yeah, (laughs) it is. That's really cool. I had no idea. It was Bruce, yep. (laughs) But yeah, that's pretty much it. Then just kind of getting ready for this story. What about you? So I went away to Fort Lauderdale this week. Yeah. And it was fun. I did something that I've never done before, and it was a lot of fun. And I recommend anybody, if you're in Fort Lauderdale, you go there often. Uh Uh-huh. You go to that side of Florida. Yeah. I would recommend the Jungle Queen. Really? Unbelievable time. It's a river cruise that Mm -hmm. takes you to their private island. Mm. And on the island, it's all decorated in, like, Polynesian. It's a Polynesian theme. You don't feel like you're in Florida. You feel you're in the middle of Hawaii. And they have a pig roast. Mm-hmm. They and while they're doing the, uh, and there's dancers around there, mm-hmm. you know, like with the flamethrowers and stuff. And it's all you can eat. So it's, it's all included. All of it. Nice. You drink and you watch shows and you tour the island. You can get lost. It's really, really, really cool. Cool. How uh, big so, is the island? I don't know, but like I, I was kind of a little, a little bit intoxicated while I was there. <laughs> So I didn't exactly. So you didn't go out and explore. No, they would have definitely found my body, like the, behind you. Yeah, no, definitely. Maybe a little nicer than what's behind me. <laughs> so no, I but I do highly recommend it if you're ever in Fort Lauderdale. And the other thing is, I just wanted to let you know, uh, Kat, I love you, but I hate you at the same time. Oh. Um, I actually watched The Last of Us. Did you watch all of it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I have to admit. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What a great fucking show. Yep. Um, what's the lead's name again? Pedro Pascal. God help me. I want to marry him. <laughs> and on top of that, we were so hooked on The Last of Us that I bought the video game. Did you started, really? It's an originally, it's a video game. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like Resident Evil. Like they started mm-hmm. it as a video game and then they branched off into movies. Yeah. So I bought the video game to play because... Uh, the story apparently they kept true to the story mm-hmm. from the video game. Mm-hmm. Now I have a question. So I am caught up in Last of Us, and I know exactly what happened in the finale. Yeah, Cat, do you feel? And this was an argument I had with some people after watching <laughs> it. Do you feel that the procedure they were doing to her mm-hmm. was they impregnated her? No. What do you think happened? I think they were just they were trying to take her blood so they could make a and I fungus whatever so I sat there and I'm like well because the per- one person said that they were like oh they tried to take her blood or whatever and yeah. I looked up I googled the video game and I'm like she's pregnant <gasps> in the video game she's pregnant so I'm like all right I'm not gonna dig into the video game yet because I want to know that storyline doesn't mean that she got pre- impregnated there right yeah but I'm like okay so if they took her blood were their blood bags was there any mm-hmm. in- in- indication that 
they were taking blood. And we rewatched the scene, and there was none. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay. Mm. All we well, maybe. Yeah. But what would be the benefit, though, of other than breeding, you know, somebody that would be immune to this? But what would that do for the rest of humanity that's left? I think breeding more of her and then maybe using them as, like, guinea pigs for their blood. Because only mm. her isn't really going to do much for humanity. There's only one. Mm-hmm. But if, if mm-hmm. she could repopulate maybe the Earth again with a a hyper person or human being that could is totally resilient yeah. to her. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I feel I feel that way. People think I'm crazy. I'm like, you know what? And I mean, and it would make it would make sense. <laughs> yeah, and it just there was something very sad about when he was driving away and she was in the backseat of the car and she kind of rolled over. Like, they didn't mm-hmm. talk about what happened to her, but something mm-hmm. happened to her, and they didn't want to talk about it. And I felt that right there was, like, it was depressing. But do you feel he's dead? No. You don't feel he's dead? That's that's another theory. They think that he's dead. No, because he's already been cast for season two. Okay, good. Thank God. Thank God! Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, good. I'm so happy I spoke to you because I was so depressed. I'm like, they didn't get rid of him, right? No. No. Well, I mean, that would be super depressing because I think a lot of people watched it because of him. Yeah. And I think he's bringing the same character that in Walking Dead that Daryl brought where, like, you can't do without him. Mm -hmm. Like, if if Daryl dies, we riot. That is it's not happening. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that's my that's my my week that I had. But yeah. So Kat, you did tell me that you're going over a cold case today. I am. Well, once was considered cold. Once was considered cold. Okay. So I don't know what case you're going. I I know the name, but I really don't know much about the case. Mm-hmm. I figured I did some digging. Like, what is a cold case? You know, some yeah something you probably already know, but I maybe some chatters would be interested in it. So, a cold case is an unsolved criminal investigation which remained open and pending during the discovery of new evidence, such as mm-hmm. information emerging or maybe new witness testimony or re-examination mm-hmm. of whatever archives they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be of new material evidence, you know, et cetera, anything that comes in. Mm-hmm. So, a cold case is a reported felony at the time of when it was reported. Uh Um, with law enforcement and it will remain unsolved for a year or more. So I guess that's where it moves into Mm -hmm. the cold case Mm -hmm. from the time when it was initially reported to the police. And there is a statute of limitations that is put on that. So it, it doesn't expire. So, well, murder doesn't expire. Right. right. There's certain, there's certain, you know, felonies that will, there will never be a statute of limitations like murder. The origin of the word cold case, or the term cold case, was first recorded between 1970 and 1975 when four detectives were working on a case of a rape and a murder of a nine-year-old girl. The media, of course the great media, Mm -hmm. they coined Coined it. They coined it. They coined this group of detectives the cold case squad. Nice. And it it just stuck after yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I figured I would go over the five most famous cold cases in the world, and we've done a couple in Crime Chat. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> first one, the Zodiac Killer, mm-hmm. believed to have killed at least five people in California from 1968 to 1969, 
the Zodiac Killer would call the police to take responsibility for his crimes, mm-hmm. like a typical narcissist. <laughs> um, and then he would taunt them with, like, letters and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And these weren't love letters. These were, like, hey, I did it, and, and here's, like, this weird-ass freaking cipher. Wasn't or... it, like, a circle with, like, the <laughs> yeah. like the cross through it or something like that? They call it something. They call it crosshairs of a, a gunshot. gunshot. Yeah. Yep. Gunshot. Yeah. Like, if you were to look through a scope. Yes. Yeah. So it's like the target. Mm -hmm. The letters would often begin with the words, this is the Zodiac speaking of fucking egomaniac. (laughs) And ended with the symbol of the crosshairs with Mm -hmm. the the gun sight. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, what you see on a, I guess it's like a target. Mm -hmm. It's like if you're shooting through a rifle, that Mm -hmm. that kind of circle with the the cross through it. Police decided to publish his letters and all all this information because they needed help. They couldn't figure out who this person was Mm -hmm. and there was these cryptic codes that were in the letters so like they figured this is where i think the police did the right thing where they were like okay we can't figure it out but there may be some stephen hawking level person out there sitting in his living room that can help us Mm -hmm. and they public they publicized it in the newspaper unfortunately nobody really decoded these yeah cryptic messages and the case was never cracked, and the Zodiac Killer identity has never been proven. Yeah. Although, there are theories. There are. And we're going to get into that in another crime chat. <laughs> <laughs> Next one is John Benet Ramsey, mm-hmm. a little girl. No suspects have ever been arrested for the murder of John Benet Ramsey, a six-year-old beauty queen found dead in the basement of her family's Colorado home on December 26, 1996. Suspects emerged, including a random intruder, Mm -hmm. which was weird, a family friend who had played Santa, which is (laughs) creepy, and, you know, of course, John Benet's parents were suspects, and then also her brother, Burke, nine-year-old Burke, was a suspect. Mm -hmm. And one of the possible reasons the case remained cold for so long is because they feel that the investigation was botched. Yeah. Soon after the police first arrived at the Ramsey home, it became, before they were able to thoroughly comb through the home uh, and all the evidence, friends of the Ramsey arrived to show their support. The police allowed them to wa- walk all over the house freely. And not, the friends yeah, were, not realizing it was a crime scene at that time. So it's completely no, contaminated. Entirely. <laughs> I mean, John, John Ramsey ended up, she was found in the basement. John brought her body up yep. and put it on the main floor in front of the Christmas tree. Like right there. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but pa- remember, Patsy also cleaned her house because mm-hmm. she had company over, mm-hmm. and they helped her clean. So, like, detectives were left shaking their heads in disbelief that all the physical evidence was disturbed and destroyed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there has been update on the John Benny Ramsey case. Yep, you saw that. Yeah, I did. Disappointing. Yes. Yeah. That nobody in the Ramsey household was responsible based on DNA. Yeah. Yeah. Disappointing. Uh, all right. Huh. Well, there I goes. Know. My theory. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, number three, the Black Dahlia case yeah, that we did. Yeah, we did that one too. Uh, on January 15th, 1947, 22-year-old Elizabeth Short was found dead in L.A. Her body was so badly mutilated mm-hmm. that it gives us nightmares 
today. Yes. The case was an immediate sensation. Short was nicknamed the Black Dahlia in reference to the flower she wore in her hair. And one photo, one photo, and boom, that's her identity. Yeah. The press had a field day with this saying that Short was flirty and a party girl and and was recorded drinking underage and yada, yada, yada. Mm Mm-hmm. Letters also arrived to the police from the killer. This led to a complete meltdown and frenzy from the media, which I think totally fucked up finding who this person was. Mm -hmm. But because most of the physical evidence in the case had been lost to time or policemen mishandling, we have pictures of the Black Dahlia with police just walking all over that scene. Yeah. You know, shocked at what they were. I, I can't even imagine being a police officer walking in on that scene. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that was a long time before we started realizing mm-hmm. a little bit more of foren- understanding forensics and then how to help, you know, keep integrity of that forensics once it's collected and then what contaminates it. So this was a, a way before. This is when we talked about 75, 80, 100 years ago when yeah. press were allowed to just come in, in take pictures yeah yeah and all of them smoked yeah they all were throwing butts around they all they, you know what not saying that they weren't doing their jobs and we we have a total understanding different understanding today but like i i would love to dig into the people that showed up to that crime scene the police mm-hmm. their mental health afterwards like oh sure how did that affect them we don't know anything about that and i'm mm-hmm. sure that fucked them up sure yeah big time but because most of the key players are dead now when i say players i mean player Hodel, George Hodel, <laughs> Natalie's um, theory, <laughs> my theory. Um, it we will never, there'll never be a, a theory that can be proven at this point. It's so old. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen Hodel, his son, has done a really yeah. good job with connecting dots. So. Right, right, yeah. And the next one is the Hall Mills murders, which is similar to the one that you went over in Lovers Lane. Okay, okay. This is the murder of a pastor and his choir singer. They were having an affair. Oh. Um, and it shocked this small town community. Yeah. And it brought accusations forward. There were inconsistent witnesses. Um, and a bunch of false confessions. Ugh. And this was in 1922 in New Brunswick, New Jersey. This was the minister, Edward Wheeler Hall. He was having an affair with a member of his congregation. Mm. Okay. And the bodies were found two days later under a crab apple tree. I don't know. I've never. Do they produce crab apples? Like, what is that? I think it's just a type of apple. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen one. Paul was shot through the head, mm-hmm. but Mills, the female, the, the the girl, her body was like brutalized. Mm. So she had been she had been shot in the face three times. Mm-hmm. Her throat had been slashed so deeply that she could have been decapitated. Decapitated, yeah. Uh, later in the autopsy, they revealed that her tongue and her larynx had been cut out. Mm. That is a crime of passion. This was personal. Yeah, yeah, that would be, yes. Uh, so the tabloids seized on the affair immediately because they mm-hmm. were like, okay, murder, yeah, yeah, but a scandal of a pastor having an affair? The audacity. Uh, I know, I know. So the prosecution really could never find enough evidence to make a conviction. Witnesses and, you know, the statements kept on changing and it was definitely influenced by 
the press coverage. Mm-hmm. So attention seekers kept confessing to the murders who didn't. And we mm-hmm. had that in John Bonet a couple of times mm-hmm. where people were like, it's me, but it's not, you know. Mm-hmm. Physical evidence was destroyed when the sightseers trampled through the crime scene. This was a time, 1922, when people were like, someone got murdered, let's go see. Yeah, let's go check it out. Let's go check it out. Let's, you know. And they would also, like, poach the crime scene for souvenirs. Mm-hmm. So we don't even know what moved away from the crime scene. But mm-hmm. this br- these brutal murders have never been solved. Next one, and the last one, Lizzie Borden. <gasps> Yay! Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40, 40 wax. And when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. 41. That's a nursery rhyme. <laughs> We're crazy. Well, we we have the best, sickest nursery rhymes. Well, a lot of nursery rhymes, we've talked about it before, too, are based on, like, sick things. (laughs) Yeah. But that wasn't even an accurate rhyme of of how many times that they were whacked. Yeah. Whacked. Whacked. (laughs) The famous rhyme definitely makes Lizzie Borden the killer of her father and mother, Mm -hmm. or stepmother, Mm -hmm. which happened on August 4th, 1892. Officially, though, the identity of the murderer remains a mystery. Mm-hmm. Initially, the evidence against Lizzie Borden looked damning. Plus, she had recently purchased acid, a poison, mm-hmm. and then she burned her dress that she was wearing when yeah. the bodies were found in the stove, which is suspicious. Also, her maid, Sullivan, uh, on August 4th, carried out a parcel from the house. So, you know. She was gone. Was a- There's no witnesses. Yeah. yeah. No. But Lizzie's trial in 1893, the court determined that all the evidence was merely circumstantial. Lizzie was not convicted, and there has been no other suspects or arrests. Yes. So, yeah. That I, I've always been fascinated by that story, too. <laughs> like, I want to go to the house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so that was a good lead-in to, you know, kind of our story, a little bit of history on some cold cases that are going on. The case that I'm going to go over... It's it's really interesting because it actually, it's been on some of the famous documentaries. So it's been on Cold Case Files. It's been on Paula Zahn, or on, this, on the case with Paula Zahn. And then earlier in April, a brand new episode just came out, Evil Lives Here. And I'll list those down in some of the descriptions. And after that crime chat, I'll definitely put the links in, in there to those. But the story today is actually a family member of a friend and former co-worker of mine. Wow. His aunt was murdered uh, almost 50 years wow. ago. okay. He, he wasn't born yet. <laughs> so at the time, he, you know, he kind of just saw all of the torment that this case brought on his family growing up, but the actual incident occurred before he was wow. born. Wow, okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. This is a major crime chat link. Yes, it is. It sure is. Mm-hmm. So you ready to get started? I am. Let's do it. All right. So my friend Jeff, Jeff Wysong, we work together. Um, we've known each other for probably 10 or 12 years now. He messaged me a couple months ago and said, hey, you know, this might be a, a good story for your podcast. Mm-hmm. I started looking into it and I was like, wow, yeah, definitely, definitely. So chatters, stay tuned because there's going to be more from kind of like behind the scenes after that crime yeah. chat a little bit about this story from the family's perspective. Mm-hmm. So exciting. Yeah. So exciting. All right. So let's get started. 
Around 10.30 in the morning on December 6, 1973, a body of a young adult female was found at the Margaret McKenney Campground in Olympia, Washington. It was found by a couple who were doing like cleanup in the campground area. The couple raced to the nearest telephone to call the police. Officers from Thurston County Sheriff's Office responded right away, and it did not take long for them to realize they had a homicide on their hands. The unidentified female appeared to be a young teenager who endured a very violent attack. Her throat was slashed, part of her clothing was cut to include her pants and her underwear near the crotch area. Her shirt was open and both of her breasts had also been cut. Pockets in her jacket were cut out as well. She was wearing only one boot, so they knew that they had a missing boot somewhere. They did scan the area and try to find this other boot. They weren't able to find it where her body was found. But it also appeared, based on this, to give them the indication that she actually had been murdered somewhere else and then dropped off at this forest campground area. There was some decomposition identified as well as animals had also disturbed the body. And this let law enforcement know that she was also not immediately identifiable based on she didn't have any identification on her body. This was the early 70s too. I mean, it wasn't really common to carry identification as, as common right. as it is now. Right. But they couldn't ad- directly identify her based on the decomposition and then some of the animal head disturbing body. Detectives investigating the scene determined it may have been somebody local because of the location of the campground site in the middle of this forest area. It was off of a service road and not a lot of people also were camping in December. I guess they don't get as much snow as you would think and I'll kind of get to that here in a bit but but because there were very many people camping at this point in December this meant also somebody probably had to know the area and know how to get there. But there were no witnesses, no footprints, no tire tracks, no identification, and police had the Jane Doe on their hands. Oh, wow. The medical examiner who conducted the autopsy determined the cause of death was from that cut in her throat. There was also evidence of sexual assault. They collected biological material and stored it thinking of this quote-unquote newly heard of DNA thing. Mm -hmm. They may be able to identify the owner of the semen at some point in time. However, they, of course, were still years away before DNA would be used in court. It wasn't until 1983 when the first person was convicted of rape and murder by DNA analysis. So this is like 10 years down the road. Yeah. Police, however, did their traditional investigation and they got to work. They brought in a sketch artist to render an image of what they thought this Jane Doe looked like. This was distributed to various police stations in the area to include 60 miles north in Seattle and then about 120 miles south in Portland, Oregon. Uh They also made a flyer of photographs with pictures of her clothing to distribute to the public, basically saying, does this clothing look familiar to anybody? Right. With their attempts in trying to identify the Jane Doe, it worked. First, detectives from Seattle contacted the Thurston County Sheriff's Office to say the sketch looked like a 14-year-old girl who had been missing for about 11 days. As they were comparing notes between Thurston County Sheriff's Office and then the Seattle Department, the news had aired the images of the victim's clothing, and the family of the J. Doe recognized it, specifically the dragon embroidery that was on the back pocket of her jeans. That's a very unique thing that they would say, yes, that's that's her. Yeah. So going back about a week and a half, Sally Ann Devine contacted police on November 25th, 1973, after she realized her daughter Kathy was missing. 
Sally Ann spoke to Kathy the night before when she was staying at a friend's house. Kathy told her mother she broke up with her boyfriend and wanted to go to Portland to visit her cousin and basically kind of help get her get over it. Mm-hmm. Sally Ann said she couldn't go. She didn't want her to miss school, but she would see to it that she actually got down there. The following morning, Kathy's friend contacted Sally Ann. After she saw Kathy leaving the house and waving goodbye, she said Kathy told her she was going to hitchhike to Portland. Kathy didn't tell Sally Ann over the phone the previous evening when she talked to her that she was planning on hitchhiking. And if she had, Sally Ann wouldn't have allowed it. She, I mean, right. but hitchhiking was a thing in the 70s. It was I know. very, very common. I know. So convinced that her daughter was in danger, Sally Ann contacted the police to report her missing. She was told to wait three days, as was typical at that point in time as well, because teenagers her age, you know, they have an argument with mom. You know, mom won't let me go. I'm going to go anyways. And then, you know, they, they come home or they're, they're seen from. Mm. So police told her to give it a few days. But Sally Ann said Kathy had never run away before. Uh-huh. Kathy never arrived in Oregon at her cousin's house. And all Sally Ann could do at this point was just sit and wait. Mm, that must have killed her. Oh. Yes. Kathy was the second of three daughters, the oldest Sherry and the youngest Charlene. Kathy was described as being sweet, big-hearted by her mother. She was born on Christmas Day of 1958 and wanted to be a minister. She loved animals and she loved caring for people. She would take in, like, abandoned animals and bring them home. And even, like, kids who were, like, abandoned, she would bring kids into the house. She just had this, like, appeared to have this character of just, like, wanting to help people. Yeah. On the night Sally Ann saw the news, her older sister Sherry said, Oh, Mom. That's Catherine. With a heavy heart, Sally Ann contacted police without a doubt in her mind that it was Kathy. Detectives requested dental records, and the medical examiner confirmed that Jane Doe was that of 14-year-old Catherine Devine. Investigators promised the Devine family they would do everything they could to find Kathy's killer. They started by retracing her last known movements. And with the media coverage so widespread, detectives received dozens of phone calls from the public saying they saw Kathy get into a pickup truck. As with many eyewitness accounts, there were varying descriptions of the vehicle and of the driver. They thought the driver was likely, however, somebody that Kathy probably knew. Their first logical step was to interview Kathy's now former boyfriend. He denied any involvement. The search didn't provide anything, the search in his home. And he also passed a polygraph, so he was eliminated as a suspect. Next, police heard that a family friend said that he saw Kathy get murdered. But when this person was questioned by police, he refused to cooperate. What? They did did get a warrant to search the home, and this revealed various newspaper clippings of Kathy's death. And they found a knife in the closet. This knife was very, the blade on the knife was very similar to the type of blade that would have been used to cut Kathy's throat. And it had, like I said, it had blood on it. Mm -hmm. However, forensic examination of the knife determined that it was animal blood. He did say to the detectives that he was hunting. Mm. He too was eliminated as a suspect. After months of tracking down every lead, the investigation started to grow cold. People in the Seattle area were also starting to become more and more terrified. There was a killer on the loose. Mm Mm-hmm. And more victims were being discovered in the area. Victims whose deaths were strikingly familiar to Kathy's. And there were uh, numerous young women who were found murdered, who also were last seen getting into a vehicle, who also were sexually assaulted, and then ultimately murdered. 
This disturbing similarity of these women, however, was that they were last seen with a man named Ted. Yes. <gasps> that Ted, Ted Bundy. I didn't expect that. All right. I didn't expect. <laughs> I didn't expect that. All right. Okay. <laughs> Ted Bundy was known to be active in the same time and in the same location of Kathy's murder. And it was just logical to assume that Kathy was just one of the many victims of the Ted killings. Yes. After Bundy was arrested and convicted, as we know now, he continued to confess dozens of other murders, you know, even after he was arrested. Some Mm -hmm. detectives think that that was kind of a a way for him to, like, delay the execution and, like, put it off as long as possible. With the hopes of finding closure, detectives from the Thurston County um, Sheriff's Office did go interview Bundy in prison and ask him for themselves. Bundy denied being the one responsible for Kathy's death, saying, quote, no, that wasn't me, end quote. But we know, too, like, he owned up to some of them. He was an egomaniac. If he yeah. Did some, he was already done. Like, he's, he's yeah. not going anywhere. So he was, yeah, for him to claim, like, responsibility and get that notoriety, like, yeah. that's Bundy. So if he's yeah. telling you no, maybe it's no. Maybe. Yeah. But we also, I mean, we've done plenty of cases, too, where, like, where serial killers claim, Pee Wee Gaskins, he claimed, said he claimed over 100 right. people that he was killed, but I think it was only 13 or 14 that was ever actually, like, confirmed. Right. But who knows? I mean, really, yeah. who, who knows? Only he, they know. However, the Divine family felt Kathy was a Bundy victim based on the situation. Uh-huh. Sally Ann said that she, she just wanted somebody to blame for this. Yeah. Yeah. And Sister Charlene said it was just too coincidental, and it all just seemed to fit. Mm-hmm. As detectives continued to analyze the M.O. of Kathy's killer compared to Bundy's M.O., there were some differences, such as Bundy was beheading his victims. Obviously, we know Kathy was not beheaded, but yeah. for nearly three decades, the case was open and the case was unsolved. Yeah. And Mom Sally Ann described this time as being miserable. I bet. I've broken. She's probably broken. Thinking yeah. that happened to her daughter. That's yeah. terrible. As DNA grew more and more advanced and shared amongst law enforcement across the nation, Thurston County Sheriff's Office decided to make one last attempt at this DNA thing. The semen collected from Kathy's body nearly 30 years before was submitted to CODIS, which is the FBI's combined DNA index system. Dun, 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 dun. And there was a match. <laughs> there was a match. Now, part of the reason there was a match, too, is that, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but somebody who the actual suspect was related to turned him in in a way but that gave the police enough to go actually get his DNA right. so they could do a comparison. It was put up into the system. And this DNA that actually came back was so unique mm. and identifiable. It was a 1 in 71 trillion match. That's more people that live on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. You're giving me chills right now. I, lo- <laughs> I love when DNA enters. It's like, just, it's like DNA is like, hold my beer. Let me solve this yeah. shit. Watch this. this. So this identified suspect was actually in prison already, serving 48 years for sexual assault that he committed just two years after Kathy's murder. Oh. So... 
Who in the hell is this guy? You ready? Mm-hmm. Born in 1947 in Seattle, Washington, William Cosden Jr., known as Bill or Billy, I'll refer to him throughout, mm. was a troublemaker growing up. He would get into trouble at home. He would get in trouble at school. He would get beat as a repercussion to being in trouble, and but seemed to actually invite his punishments. His sisters also said that he did exactly what he was told not to do with the intention of getting punished. Billy seemed to display at least two of the three indicators of the McDonald triad. Uh-huh. And we know that the triad is bedwetting, animal cruelty, and arson. Yes. In 1963, John McDonald developed this theory of the McDonald triad that would indicate a predication of serial offenses with substantial evidence of childhood patterns later turning into predatory behavior. While some have actually disputed this theory, it certainly does seem to be the case for Billy, and I'm going to get into some of that. So not only did Billy like having control and power, he also liked to control his sisters. Karen was 15 years younger than Billy and absolutely loved her kitty cats. Oh, no. Billy knew this, and he would hurt them because she loved them so much. Oh, no. Billy Billy told Karen that he would put them in a bag and he hung them from an overpass from a highway so semis would hit them with their truck when they drove under. Like, he was on the overpass and they would drive under and they would hit the bag. I hate Billy. I fucking hate Billy. Okay. Karen said that when Billy told her this, she cried and Billy seemed to give her some sort of maniacal laugh. At one point, so they lived in Seattle, they moved to Maryland, and then they ended up moving back to Seattle. This part in when, is when they lived in Maryland. The Cosden homes caught on fire. Karen said she remembered watching the house in, fully engulfed in flames, waiting for the fire trucks to show up. When she was outside, she was standing next to Billy, and she looked at him, and he was just like, for lack of better terms, engulfed in the flames. Like, he was just staring at the flames. Looking at his work, going, Looking wow, his work. I did that. Yeah. yeah. It was determined that the cause of the fire was supposedly electrical, but Billy's mother always thought that he actually did cause the fire. His own mother. Oh, yes. You know when you have an evil kid. You know it. Younger sister Susan, who was 19 years younger than than Billy, said that he liked to burn things at an early age, that fire would also help cover up evidence. After moving back to Washington State years later, there was a fire at a vacant house in their neighborhood, and police suspected that Billy was behind it, but Billy denied it. He apparently never got into trouble for the things that he did and seemed to get away with, like, a lot of things. Uh But there were more than just fires and there were more than just animal cruelty. At the age of four or five for both Karen and Susan each, Billy sexually assaulted them for many years. They never told anyone. They didn't even tell each other until years and years and years and years years later. Well, he was killing their pets and he was burning Mm -hmm. shit. Like, they were Mm -hmm. probably freaked out. Oh, my Mm -hmm. lord. And a lot of this was because of Billy's power and control that he had over them. He was so much older than them. Uh-huh. And Karen said that she didn't realize that it was actually abuse until much later in her life. She thought that she just had a mean brother who was doing mean things to their sister. Right. Oh, my God. Susan, the younger sister, described one of the one incident occurring over Christmas where she had green and blue lights in her window, like she remembers those Christmas lights, uh-huh. and he came in the room, and while he was assaulting her, she would just stare at the lights and oh. just, like, zone out. And she said on the documentary that I watched that she can't even look at blue and green lights together anymore. It just brings back a lot of that. Wow. 
So Billy dropped out of school in the 10th grade. He joined the U.S. Marine Corps, where he was almost immediately shipped off to Vietnam. Mm. When Billy came home after his tour, he brought Karen some silky pajamas from Vietnam. He was showing her pictures from being over there. And there was one girl that was around the same age as Karen wearing like the similar type of attire that he had brought back for her. And she complimented the picture. And Billy said, yeah, she was nice, but we had to kill her. Billy smiled once he realized how much this actually shocked Karen, and he just seemed to be really cruel to everyone. I'm sure he was over there wreaking havoc. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. It'll come up here in a second. Oh. Billy started to work at his father's truck stop after he left the military. They owned a truck stop that was really, was very close to the campground where Mm -hmm. Kathy's body was found. It was only a few miles away. One night, Billy came downstairs he said, hey, mom, how do I look? You know, mom, his mom was like, you look great. So he went out for the night. Sister Karen remembers the next morning when she came downstairs, there was the sheriff talking to her parents in the kitchen. Both of her parents were extremely upset. And then she found out later that Billy, that night when he came home from going out, told his father that he raped and killed a girl. Dad called the cops and Billy was arrested. However, Billy was found guilty by reason of insanity, likely due to his time in Vietnam. He was sentenced to a mental institution where he remained for four years. Four. One, two, three, four. Four years. I sound like he was crazy before he went to Vietnam. Oh, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Don't blame Vietnam. I mean, seriously. His four years in a mental institution Mm. didn't stop there Mm. once he got home. He never went to jail, never seen, and just kind of always got away with things and probably felt that the legal consequences, like, didn't apply to him. Right. He felt above the law. So after Billy was released from this mental hospital, that very same night he sexually assaulted Karen. She said that everybody was so happy that he was home and she was so afraid of him that she didn't want to tell anyone. Susan would also say that Billy would constantly go out searching for prey and used the younger sister as bait. So, for instance, when Billy would come home from working in the middle of the day, like from the truck stop, he would tell his mom, hey, I'm going to take Susie out for some ice cream. Susie would say, I don't want to go, mom. But mom was like, just go. Don't make him mad. Just go. Billy would not go get her ice cream. He would pick up hitchhikers, female hitchhikers, and ask them, uh, hey, where are you going? You need a ride? Most did not hesitate to accept this ride after seeing a cute little first grader with pigtails sitting next to a kind of handsome guy. It was Billy's way of saying, trust me. Yeah, yeah. When they got in, get this, when they got in, he put Susan in the back cab of the pickup truck that had a, and it had a cover on it mm-hmm. so she couldn't get out like he locked her in the back mm-hmm. like the the bed of the truck had a cover yeah. and he locked her in the back of it he would put her in there and shut the door like shut the the back end of the truck he would put Susie in the back in the bed of the truck where it had a cover and it would latch she had no way of getting she was locked in she had no way of getting out But this was after the unknown victim would get into the vehicle. Mm. So once they got in and Susie was in the back, they would drive for a little bit and then stop. Billy turned up the music and Susan said she couldn't hear anything. She was locked in the back. She didn't know what was happening. And at this point, anything could have been happening. And in addition to this, Billy seemed to go to very extreme lengths also to cover his tracks. One night, Billy came into the house when they were all eating dinner. Of course, he was a little bit older, so the girls were a little bit younger. Mm -hmm. He came in and told his father his truck got on fire. This was the second truck to catch on fire, and again, it was explained as being an electrical problem. Mm. The praying and the hunting and the cover-up of evidence appeared to have gone on for many years. Mm -hmm. 
So three years later, after Billy was released from this mental institution, it was Thanksgiving and it was snowing, which was, like I said, it was kind of rare, I guess, around this time frame right. uh, for this time of year for it to be snowing. Billy said, hey, I'm going to go help some people who might have got stranded or maybe they get stuck in a ditch. I'll go pull them out of the ditch. I'm going to go see what I can find. But this was not a Good Samaritan act. Again, it was a hunt. Yeah, It was an excuse for him to get out. The following morning, so the day after Thanksgiving, police came to arrest Billy for kidnapping and rape. This time, he was convicted and he was sentenced to 48 years, which is where we find the DNA match nearly 30 years later wow. for the murder of Kathy Devine. Wow. This case is actually to believe one of the oldest murder cases in Washington State in which DNA evidence had been used. Wow. It wasn't just DNA that the police had. There were also some other witness accounts linking Billy to Kathy's murder. When poring over the case file, the initial investigation, they realized that William Cosden Jr. was listed as a person of interest. Someone on one of the tip lines that they got early, early, early in the investigation said that they saw blood in the back of Billy's pickup truck. So police are like, we got to find this guy. They were able to track him down and interview him again with some more information. Now, the witness said that he suspected Billy was stealing from him and from the truck stop. So he he went to Billy's truck to go, like, look through it. And then when he did, he moved a tarp. And underneath the tarp, he found a bloody sleeping bag. And he found a boot. (gasps) Remember, Kathy was only wearing one boot. Yes. The witness confirmed through a picture of the of Kathy's boot that she was wearing when she was found. The witness confirmed that was the same type of boot that he saw in the back of Billy's truck. He also said the day after that he found this bloody sleeping bag and the boot, Billy's truck mysteriously went up into flames. Uh-huh. Now, armed to a T with some evidence, Thurston County Sheriff's detectives went to talk to Billy in person while he was in prison. He denied knowing Kathy after seeing a picture of her. He denied having sex with her. He even denied knowing where the Margaret McKinney campground was, even though it was literally on his way to and from work every day. After all of these denials, detectives dropped the DNA bomb, saying, quote, If you've never seen her before and never had sex with her, then how did your sperm get into her body? Yeah. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Ringer! So apparently his eyes got super big. He kind of locked up a little bit, continued to deny knowing her. I didn't kill anyone. Mm -hmm. Detectives ended the interview knowing that they did have a strong case. Mm -hmm. Once Mom Sally Ann heard of the news, she was ecstatic. After all these years, somebody had finally been charged and arrested in the murder of her daughter. The Divine family had a front row seat at the trial where they got to see Kathy's killer face to face. Sister Charlene told Paula Zahn, quote, it was really hard to look at his face and think of Kathy, that that was the last thing that Kathy saw. Yeah. It was devastating, but also empowering. It might have taken a lot of, year- a lot of years to get us there, but we were there. Yeah. End quote. In the end, no verdict can ease the sense of a loss. However, William Costin Jr., who was 55 year old, years old at this time, was convicted of murder of the 14-year-old Catherine Devine, sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And on June 23, 2015, he was 68 years old when he suffered a heart attack and he died in prison. Yeah, this beautiful, young, and aspiring teenager barely had a chance to show her world the, the kindness and her big heart 
her dreams of being a minister would never come true. But by sharing her story, we hope to help the family share her life and help her legacy live on for years to come. And we need more Kathy's in this world. We do. Rest in peace, Kathy. This is a story for today. <laughs> and oh, we just want to say thank you, Jeff, for sharing it. And, you know, to Jeff and your family yes. for encouraging us to share this story. Mm-hmm. So they they want to continue to share what happened to Kathy yeah. uh, and to share the story. And it's been on, like I said, it's been on so many documentaries so far. There's a ton of research and, and articles that are out there on this, too. It's just not as widely known. And it could have. And I even did find some, you know, Ted Bundy references yeah. that say that she was murdered by him. But a lot of them do come back and clarify because it was and until I think it was 2002 when. So she was killed in 1973. 2002 is when they got the DNA confirmation and he was convicted. So almost 30 years. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, question. I have to watch this this series. But question. So are his parents still alive or no? The, the suspect? Yeah. Billy? Yeah. Billy. Oh, no, 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 no. He, so he was 68. His sisters were recently interviewed on an episode of Evil Lives Here, mm. and they told their side of the story growing up with Billy. A lot of this, that you know, kind of his evilness yeah. was brought out in that episode. And that just came out um, at the beginning of April this year. Okay. So the parents, I don't think, are alive anymore. The sisters did make some reference about kind of their parents knew but were in denial. There was a lot of secrets that was in the family kind of growing up. Like, we're not, we're going to show this, you know, outside picture of a perfect family, but we're, you know, you don't talk about it. We don't talk about Bruno. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just, it's sad because if the parents just realized what he was, they may have just, this didn't need to happen. Well, I think they knew, but he kept getting chances. Like he always, he always would have had a job at the truck stop. Yeah, but if his father You know what I mean? But that's where he picked up a lot of his victims. I bet there's more victims out there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. As many times as it appears that he had gone out and went praying and hunting and it took, so I did look into the story as well of the what he was in jail for serving this 48 years, like the kidnapping and rape that he was convicted of. Right. That happened two years after Kathy was murdered. Mm. And it was somebody that he knew. She was interviewed on the Paula Zahn episode where she said that she was able to humanize herself and like get get on like a one-on-one level and kind of talk through him and say, look, you can come over and visit me anytime. We live right across the street from each other. You can come and see me. I won't tell anyone. Just, just let me go. You don't have to kill me. Just let me go. And he did. He let her go. So whatever she did, it worked her. Her stepfather was also a police officer. Wow. Oh, my God. Of course, when she went home, she reported it, and he was arrested the very next day. What, so. what, a, what a horrible... I mean, that's only victims that we know. God only knows yeah. how many victims there are out there, mm-hmm. not only in the United States, but in Vietnam. Sure, yeah. What a monster. What a monster. Yeah. What a, the military side of me is wondering, like, Okay, and CIS, what did you do? Like, did you do anything on this? Like, did we know anything about him when he was in the Marines? Like, are there any war charges? Or did we just kick him out going, you're not Marine material, we're just going to let you go. Right. But like, but was there any other reason or justification for that? So that's, 
Yeah. That military side of me. But <laughs> my also, brain was going. If they knew something, they couldn't. I mean, the military court and that process is completely separate from our mm-hmm. court system. So, like, mm-hmm. they, I don't even think our, can our court system subpoena the military court? No. Well, no, you can, so they could subpoena records, yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. They could. They could subpoena records for his time when he was in service. Mm. Yes. It could be used as long as he hadn't been charged while he was in, because that for the same crime. So double, double jeopardy standards would still apply. Okay. Because if he was, let's say the little girl in Vietnam, if he was convicted while he was in the military for murdering that little girl in Vietnam, nothing happened. And then <gasps> the locals, I don't know if it did. I'm just saying. But, it, but, but he, the double jeopardy would apply. It would apply. Yes. Wow. They couldn't try him again for it. Wow. Oh my God. Because if he was acquitted and, and there's no, they wouldn't go through with it again. Yeah. What? I mean, there would be very extenuating circumstances for like that type of example, but double jeopardy does apply when it comes to, because it's considered federal. Yeah. You're federal crimes. So it would be like getting charged multiple times by multiple jurisdictions. What annoys me, like really makes me angry is the complete fucking denial of his family knowing mom Mm. i'm not saying it's all on mom but we're talking Mm -hmm. about decades ago so moms had a bigger role in the household they weren't really working the way we are now she she was a she was a housewife she that that was her job she tended to the house she made dinner she kept it clean right and she tried to keep peace with everybody her daughters are literally being brutalized by her son Mm -hmm. in her home she had no idea Apparently not. I call. Not in- I claim bullshit. I think I. Think, I'm <laughs> sorry. I don't have sympathy for parents who turn a blind eye. I don't. Yeah. This this could have been prevent prevented if they actually parented mm-hmm. and and realized that their son was deeply deeply disturbed. But then again, this is so long ago that even our system of processing people that have these issues that w- was yeah. different. So it was. It was. Mm. Oh. This is a this was a rough story and in kind of close to home, yeah. you know, you've got a friend, yeah, you know, whose family member, even though that my friend le- never met them, but still a family, family member, and he still saw the effects that it had on his family, especially because it was such a long case. Yeah. And hopefully, we'll get Jeff on here and we'll be able to talk to him. But he did say that this part of this reason was why he wanted to get into law enforcement. Wow! So. Wow! That's that's big, and I'm so happy that you did this story because this is a real crime chat link, and yeah. I'm happy that he brought this up to you and to yes. do it. So thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Yes, thank you, and rest in, rest peace, in peace, Kathy. Blessings to your family, yeah. and we will continue to share the story as best as we can just to help with your family and just share Kathy's legacy. Yes, share her legacy. I know you have some other things that are you're planning to do with Jeff like for this mm-hmm. story, so I can't wait to see that. But based on the story, because we don't want to leave you hanging, chatters, please check out After That Crime Chat, which is only available on Patreon. Yes, I'll have the links to the documentaries. I also have found tons of beautiful pictures of Kathy that are going to be posted. And this mongrel of a man. I've got some pictures of him, too. But don't forget to follow us, Crime Chat with Nat and Cat, on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and TikTok to see what we got coming up. Yes, and remember, Crime Chat with Nat and Cat, when you become a chatter... On our Patreon, you'll have full access to bonus episodes, behind the scenes, bloopers, and free merch. So you want to check out the merchandise that we have, definitely. Yes, and check out our next episode. It's going to be Natalie's turn. Yay! Are we, you have a teaser for us? No. 
because it's not going to be as dark as this. <laughs> this I'm going to need to. I'm going to. I'm going to have like this is one of those stories that puts you in a headspace. So yeah, yeah, we'll take a breather next time. <laughs> yeah, I need a breather. Thank you, Cat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cat strikes again. Either way, guys, you don't want to miss it. We'll see you on the next Crunch Chat.